Hi, I'm Brie. I'm Mar. And I'm Alexis. And this is Journeys to Journos. Where we connect with fellow journalists on their journeys. And hear what they've learned along the way. Welcome back to J to J. Oh my god, that sounds so exciting to say that we're back with our first guest of season two. Are you guys excited for our guests? Oh yeah. Season two, first person, we're ready to go. I mean, could we have gotten anyone better than Gio Benitez? Probably not. So here we are. Definitely not. I mean, Gio is beyond impressive. He may or may not be friends with Wendy Williams, which was enough for me to be like, okay, we need Gio on the pod. But aside (laughs) from his friendship with the infamous Miss Williams, he just had such incredible advice and things to say in terms of journalism. Yeah, and he was genuinely so kind and so gracious with us, just kind of answering any question that we had, giving us an inside look at what his career is now and how he got there. And I couldn't be more excited for everyone to hear this episode. Me too. Yes, so without further ado, my Latino mentor, here's Gio Benitez. Gio Benitez, born and raised in Miami, is the transportation correspondent for ABC News. He covers aviation, railroads, the auto industry, and space for all ABC News programs and platforms. He's an award-winning reporter and has covered a wide range of stories for the network, including the Pulse nightclub shooting, El Chapo's escape from a Mexican prison, and the Boston Marathon bombing. Gio is the recipient of three National Emmy Awards and is an eight-time nominee. He started his career as an Emma Bowen Foundation scholar, which is actually where I was connected with him. So thank you so much for joining us, Gio. Absolutely. How could I say no? I absolutely love what you're doing with this podcast. (laughs) So Gio, we're going to just jump straight into it. Um, You know, what would you say ultimately brought you to journalism? We saw you studied sociology and anthropology in undergrad. So was it during your time in college or did you know before then? It was way earlier. I'm talking about middle school. Um, And I remember constantly growing up. It was in particular Hurricane Andrew in 1992 in Miami that I saw the devastation uh, that had occurred after that hurricane moved through. There were so many tornadoes, hundreds of tornadoes within the hurricane. And my family, some some of my family members had their homes just destroyed. And I remember watching television and seeing how important it was, what was happening on TV and the communication and getting out to the community that I realized, wow, this is this is really important stuff. And then in middle school, I remember that in particular, I was already doing like the TV production and I was the weatherman. I was the weatherman on our on our middle school news. And I remember with my very squeaky voice telling my advisor, I said, you know, there's this storm moving through and uh, I just, I just, I want to go and report outside. And we had this technology. This was like a middle school. We had this like satellite like technology that I could broadcast from anywhere in the school and, and beam it to the little studio we had. So now we're outside, I'm in my little jacket and there's like the storm that's moving through. And there was this gust of wind as I was reporting. And there was this kid who was walking in the hall and the gust just threw the kid on the floor. And I told the camera, the the person operating the camera, I I had them point the camera at the kid. The kid was on the floor, the papers were everywhere. This this gust of wind had literally picked him up because he was so small and, and threw him down. And I said at that moment, I said, teachers, 
when the bell rings, keep all of your kids in their classrooms and in their homerooms. When that bell rang, not a single door opened up. Now, someone could take that and say, okay, well, a little bit of a power complex. You felt like you had a lot of power right there. But at that moment, I actually felt <laughs> like it was something that was really protecting all of the kids because the school hadn't been canceled. For whatever reason, the school district kept everything going with like 60 mile per hour winds. And our school principal later came to me and she said, thank you for doing that. I'm glad you did that because that was really important. And nobody moved for the rest of the day. Everybody stayed in the homeroom because it was just too dangerous. Um, so I realized then how important it was for you know keeping everybody safe and keeping everybody informed. And th that's something I've never forgotten. And it's, and it's a story when I'm asked that question, that's the story that comes to mind because I think about how important this work is. I love that story. That's like iconic, like first journalism experience. I guess to fast forward just a little bit, we'll go from your middle school days, kind of jumping post-grad into your first job. Traditionally, when we talk about broadcast or we think about a career in broadcast, it usually starts with people in some remote location in a small market and then working their way up jumping market to market to eventually get to hopefully somewhere that you are. What would you say went into your decision starting off as a producer in a top market and then transitioning? So, you know, when I graduated from the Emma Bowen Foundation, um, I was given this opportunity to be the investigative producer at the local CBS station in Miami. And I just thought at that age, what was I, 21, 22, whatever it was, I just thought, who gets this kind of opportunity, investigative producer? I always wanted to do on-camera on reporting, but I just thought this opportunity to learn in this market 16 in the country out of 210 markets. And so I did that. I, I decided I wanted to do that. Six months into that job, I went to my news director and I said, you know, I think I want to go ahead and, and try to do something on camera. I want to follow that. And she says, okay, but you've just been doing this job for six months. Just give it a beat, give it a little bit and go ahead and, and, and then we'll figure it out. And I said, can I ever start in Miami? And she said, absolutely not. There's not a chance. And I said, okay, I'm not delusional. I get it. Market 16. And she said, listen, I'll help you get a job at a smaller market. And I said, great. That's, that's what we'll do. We'll just give this a little more time. Fast forward to a year into this job. And now I'm on vacation and I lose my iPhone. And that's how everything happened. That was the pivotal moment that, that everything changed. Because when I got back to Miami, I went to the Apple store, I got a new iPhone and they said to me, they said, you know, why don't you wait? We think there's a new one coming out. Why don't you just wait? And I said, oh, no, I can't wait. The very next day, Steve Jobs announces the iPhone 3GS with video. It is the first iPhone with video. And the last day that I could return the phone I had just bought was the first day the new one was coming out. So if I wanted to exchange it, I had to be one of those people standing in line at four o'clock in the morning to get this phone. So I'm standing in line at four o'clock in the morning. And now I have this wonderful relationship with my news director at the time, right? She has a vested interest in my success. I have a vested interest in her success. And so I'm texting with her at five o'clock in the morning. I said, I can't believe I'm standing in this line but I'm here. And she called me and she says, you know, when you get your phone, why don't you start shooting some video with it? And then she called me again and she says, you know, everybody's getting kicked off property. Apple doesn't want us there. 
why don't you go ahead and shoot the whole story and you be the reporter? You think you could do it? And I was like, yes, let's, I can do it. I can do it. I had no idea if I could do it. And so here I go, I get the phone, the rapper's still on it, all this stuff. I get out there, I start recording. Nobody believes I'm with CBS. I do a little stand-up where I'm recording myself. Da, 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 da. Now I'm a producer also. So I go back to the TV station and I put all this video into my uh, Final Cut Pro and I put the whole thing together and we air it in our 5.30 news. And at that moment, everything changed for me because now this story airs and it becomes, without us intentionally doing it, it becomes the first time a phone had ever been used for professional television. And so now we're getting calls from all over the place and they're writing about us all over the world. And that's the moment where I said, okay, well, I, I guess I'm gonna be able to start in Miami and this totally weird way is gonna be how. But to be honest with you, I spent the next six months of that job where I was still a producer, but every once in a while I was reporting. I spent the next six months crying myself to sleep because I really thought that I wasn't gonna be able to keep it. I was horrible, I was horrible. And that's why I always show young people all of the videos of my mistakes and I tell them the horror stories because I don't want what they see on Good Morning America every day to be what they think you know, they have to start at. So, so that's how it sort of began and that's, a story that I'm, I'm proud to share of all the mistakes and, and all the, the troubles over those first six months, um, because I think it's really important, especially as you make such a transition in a market like Miami, like you said. I mean, this is one of the biggest markets in the country, and I just never thought that I would be able to start there. I guess in the back of my head, I, I did think I could, and that's why I always was pushing for it. Um, but I also don't think that it necessarily needs to be the path that everybody follows. And I still, to this day, always tell young people, start in a smaller market. Make your mistakes where the stakes are lower. Um, make your mistakes where it won't necessarily end up on YouTube. And I think that that's really important because you, you want to learn, you will always learn more from your mistakes. I have to say, I really, one of the reasons we love this podcast is because you know, all three of us are at the start of our careers and it's so awesome to hear, you know, some more seasoned professionals that also admit, yeah, you know, we were making mistakes um, at the start and, and that's how you learn. So very encouraging. And it's not just mistakes like, you know, oh, I, I can't pronounce something on TV. And believe me, there were plenty of those where I just like went totally blank in what I was saying. And what came out of my mouth was total gibberish, okay? But I'm talking about real editorial mistakes that have an impact on the community. Right. I remember saying at the very beginning, and I put this in all the scripts, the anchor said it, everybody said it. I said that the new Marlins ballpark would cost $2.5 trillion. Okay, <laughs> trillion dollars. Like, like that's an insane number. And that's what I said. And I did not realize this mistake that I had made until guess who was watching the budget director for the marlins ballpark who said um where did you get that number so i went into that control room and i begged the producer to let us go ahead and make a correction within the same broadcast thankfully right. they said yes and they did it and we made the correction and then i was able to write to my news director and say this is what happened this is why it happened and this is how we fixed it it won't happen again it's always how you respond to a mistake 
And because it was Miami, I was like, that mistake is totally magnified. And, and that's why I think it's just so important to start smaller, start smaller, because you're going to be able to learn so much. Don't, you know, listen, there's so much time to go ahead and, and get to the network and all that stuff, all your dreams that you want to do. There's so much time for that. Start and learn and do it right and then work your way up. Totally. And also have a group chat with other journalism friends so that when you do make mistakes, you can seek refuge <laughs> in, in the group chat. Um, Gio, you mentioned, um, you know, back in 2009, you were the first reporter to ever shoot a TV story entirely with an iPhone. So can you kind of speak to what it's like navigating the convergence of digital and traditional media in the broadcast space? Because obviously, I'm sure you've seen the full trajectory of how fast paced everything is changing. Well, listen, the good thing is that no matter where you are, whether you have a camera person with you or not, it doesn't matter. You can go ahead and record something and, and get it on tape. So that's the good news. The sort of troubling thing is that there's so much fake video going around all over the place on social media. So there is so much more work that now has to go into confirming something and making sure something is real and making sure that the person who says they shot the video actually did and you don't get into legal problems. Um, so I think that there's a bunch of little hurdles um, that are not just like, oh, okay, well, this happens to be on social media. Let's just go ahead and air it. I think you have to be much more careful now. Awesome. And could you tell us more about like how your opportunity to join ABC came along, like when you moved to that major market and, you know, at like what point in your career did you know it was time for that, for that change when it does come? So when I was 25, I was a year into reporting at, uh, at, at CBS in Miami and the head of talent at CBS news at the time added me on Facebook. And that's how it all started. And so I was like freaking out. I was like, oh, what is this? And I'm like not saying anything because I'm like, ah, I don't want to say anything wrong. And so I didn't. I didn't say anything. But when she left CBS News to go to ABC, I just sent a little note. I mean, there was no ulterior motive here. It was just a congratulations. And I sent her a little note and I said, congratulations, wishing you the best. That was it. She replied, send me your stuff. And so... Right away, I'm like, oh, my gosh, okay. So I'm putting together this reel and all that, and I send it her way. Um, and, uh, and, and then I, I just basically, she says, you know, why don't you come? Why don't you come to like a, I think there was a conference in Florida and the, the, my work wasn't letting me go ahead and, and go to this conference. Um, so I just wrote to her and I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to be in New York anyway. I wasn't going to be in New York anyway. Like I totally made that up. I was on American Airlines website. I was calling a friend and saying, can I stay with you? And another one, do you have any miles I can borrow? And, and that's how I got a ticket and all that. And I ended up in New York. And so I went for what they call, you know, um, general uh, meetings. You know, there was no job lined up. It was just to sort of meet everybody. So we got the conversation going. And that's what a lot of people don't realize with these jobs. It's not a traditional kind of job that you just applied to. Sometimes you can. Um, it's much more of a relationship building and you're making sure that these people know who you are. They're following your work. You're, you're, you have this path of communication. You have a relationship that's going on. And um, there was no job lined up. We were just meeting and I was doing these with all the other networks too. They were called the, the courtesy meetings. And uh, then fast forward to the, um, the NAHJ and NABJ conference. They were held together. It was called Unity. 
Um, and I, I went and I met with, uh, with ABC again there, showed them my tape, and they said, okay, this time we're flying you out. And that's how we, we got the real conversation. But I got to tell you, and I've been talking about this with people lately, I did not realize, this was nine years ago now, I did not think that I was going to get this job at ABC. I thought that my interviews went horribly. I thought that it was just like, you know, we always have this image in our minds of like how these conversations go. And, and that's what happened with me. I honestly thought that ABC was not happening. I was 26 years old when I had this interview. Okay, I was not delusional to the fact that at 26, I could get this job. And um, sure enough, maybe two or three months later, I heard from them and they said, we would like to have the president of ABC talk to you. And I had uh, a Zoom with the president of ABC. And that's when they basically offered me the job. And uh, I signed the, the, the contract on my 27th birthday. Yeah, it was a total whirlwind how it happened. Um, and I know that there were a lot of people who were wondering, who is this kid? Like, is this <laughs> kid like, really, ABC News? And he's 27? Um, but I made it a point to the moment I joined ABC, I was on the air uh, with my very first story on Good Morning America, the third day on the job, and I did not stop. I did not stop. They, they had this running joke where I did 90 stories in 90 days, and I just kept rolling with the number of days was the number of stories I was doing um, because I wanted to prove myself, and I wanted to show them, you know, listen, I, I may be young, but I'm here to do the work. I'm here to do the work and to do it. Wow, that is awesome. And a masterclass in networking. I've, <laughs> I feel like we've heard so many stories of people, you know, being like, oh, yeah, of course I'm in town and they're, buy they're buying the flight. So clearly that is a, a fantastic strategy. Save <laughs> um, your miles for that moment. <laughs> save your miles. <laughs> awesome. So when you when you did get that job and you know what type of adjustments did you have to make at the network level like as you know as a correspondent reporting for you know several different abc news programs what was that transition transition like going from local to national you know people often ask me what's your schedule and the truth of the matter is i have no schedule the when the shows are on the air i'm potentially on the air as well so that means that at 7 a.m. I may be on Good Morning America, but at 6.30 at night, I may also be on World News Tonight. Um, and by the way, I may also be on Nightline and I may be working on something for the next morning's GMA, right? So it's this constant cycle. So um, for me, it was sort of uh, Ben Sherwood, who was the former president of ABC News and, and um, ultimately the former uh, president of Disney Television. He told me, he says, you know, the trick, Geo, is to find the balance within the imbalance. So it's, it's never about finding balance in this kind of work. I, 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 I do think it's really tough to find like that balance, right? There's there, there are exceptions and there are certain jobs that you can take, take at the network um, that will let you have that kind of balance. Um, but as a correspondent, you're really moving around and at least the way I do it, right? There are other ways people do it. But the way I do it, I like to be available for the different shows and I fit my life in around that. And I sort of have my own little schedule. After GMA, that's my gym time, that's my me time. And then I go and I work on a world news story. And then in the middle of that, I'm trying to get my GMA written so that after world news, I'm, you know, I can be left alone and, and sort of have dinner and be with Tommy and all that stuff. Um, so I try to create my own little schedule like that. 
But I think that for each person, especially at the network level, it's just about finding what works for you. There are other people who have an entirely different schedule than I do and an entirely different mindset that totally works for their, their schedule. And I think what's fun about this job is sort of like finding what it is that works for you. And that's very different than local news where you have these set hours um, where you, you, know, you can come in at eight and you know, leave at six or you know, whatever it is, you can have these set hours. Uh, where that it's that's not necessarily the case in network television totally we also in our journalism group chat are often discussing how tough like the hours can be in in this job but um you know joe you just mentioned a bunch of different hats that you wear and amongst them you know you have sort of stepped aside from forms of storytelling that aren't just hard news uh, we saw that you have hosted i survived a crime and so we were wondering like First, how did that opportunity come about? But also, is that something that you knew you wanted to do to kind of grow and advance your career? You know, I've always been curious about different programs and stuff. And this is a show that we did for A&E, um, which happens to be half owned by Disney. So that was kind of serendipitous. Um, but, you know, this, this show for A&E, the producers um, were people that I worked with and I met at these conferences, especially the Investigative Producers and Editors Conference. Um, that's where I met these folks. And so the producer of that show called me and said, hey, we have this, what, what do you think about it? And I said, I think that's a, that's a really interesting idea, but I didn't say yes right away. I wanted to make sure when we were doing this story that we were properly representing like who, who are the survivors and who are the criminals? And I wanted to make sure that that was represented properly. Um, and so I, I literally, before we did this show, I said, okay, send me a list of all the cases and I'm gonna dive deep into each and every case. And that is the reason why I, I wanted to do that show because I wanted to show, um, this, this, was, this was really the impetus for this. I wanted to show that you could be a survivor no matter what you look like, no matter what your background is, right? You, you are, that, that's, that's what I wanted to profile. And up until that point, I don't believe that there had been a show on television that really captured that uh, fully in that way. And so I, I really thought that this was an important show. Um, and I didn't want to, I, I didn't want this, this show to go ahead and, and sort of glamorize crime, you know what I mean? Like there's so many true crime shows out there that are glamorizing crime. I, I didn't want that. And I, I wanted to capture the emotion and the tone very responsibly. Um, because at the end of the day, I'm an ABC News correspondent. And I, it's, it's really important that, you know, all of the hard work uh, that we do to, to, to keep a certain standard of journalism at ABC News wasn't lost um, in, in a broadcast that isn't necessarily managed by ABC News. Um, so it was, it was great. There was so much support from, from everybody at ABC. And, uh, and, and I think it was, they, there were really important discussions that were had with the show. I think that's a really good point too, especially taking a journalist's approach to telling those types of stories. I think a lot of times you can watch some of those shows and it is super glam glamorized or romanticized or super like scandalous in some way. Can you tell us, I guess, a little more about your storytelling approach and kind of how you get a story and you think about different ways to tell it? And then also what that kind of was like 
during COVID and how that changed or the way that the last two-ish years of this pandemic have really affected that part of the job? So for me, I start every single story asking the question, why should I care? As a viewer, right? Why should I care? Why should I care? And I hope to answer that question very quickly because I, I truly believe, and this is what I love about Good Morning America, is that it's a show where you're talking about the hard stuff, you're capturing the hard news and you're discussing it, but you could also go ahead and, and have something that'll help you live life a little bit easier, right? A little bit better. Um, and then there's other stuff that's just gonna entertain you. And my perspective on all of it is, all of it is important for different reasons. And so I always ask that question, no matter if it's a serious story or just something fun, why should I care? And I need to have that answer. And that is my form of storytelling, where I just like to break things down to answer that question for the audience. Now, I'm not literally saying to people, this is why you should care, but I hope to do that in the reporting um, when I'm bringing that story to you. And so that's, that's the biggest thing. That never changed. COVID or not, that never changed. I think what changed is interviewing people. Um, still to this day, I just did an interview on Zoom. It's so weird, right? It's just so weird to like seeing people in 2D and not being able to see people in 3D where you could really react off what it is that this person has told you and said. Um, and that's still, I think, very, very strange. We are also still getting used to it. And our first journalism jobs have been pandemic remote jobs. So it's definitely not what we expected, um, but hopefully eventually we get to meet our colleagues in person. Um, Gio, within your approach to storytelling, how much is your identity involved in that? I know, you know, I've definitely confronted or all of us have confronted that, you know, at our jobs. And I'm as a first gen Latina, I sometimes cover Puerto Rico and I was confronted with it often. So how would you say your identities manifest in the work that you do? You know, I think that when we're when, when we're looking at our backgrounds, I always like to say the background should obviously you're 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 you shouldn't be biased towards something, but I always think that your background should inform your reporting. And I think that sometimes that that can be lacking if you don't necessarily, not in a malicious way, but you don't necessarily have the background and the knowledge and you didn't grow up a certain way, right? I grew up with a single mom in a multi-generational household. Um, abuela was around and like all this stuff. We had money for nothing, right? Like there was <laughs> that kind of thing. And, um, and so I, I grew up with that. I didn't grow up with an Ivy League education. Like there are so many parts of my identity, right? Aside from the Latino thing. Uh, obviously, I'm gay, right? So that's a whole other layer. Um, so I, I always make sure that I use that to inform my reporting. And um, for an example, if it may not even be an issue where I'm talking about anything that has to do with Latinos, but let's say I'm thinking about um, a story on on uh, tax hikes and and even gas prices, and we're saying, you know, the average American may be spending fifty dollars a week more. To me, that means something. I think about my mom. I think about like she was working two jobs at the, at a time, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, like that's that's a lot of money. And um, so so that's the kind of thing. That's what I mean. Like I whatever your background is, use it to inform your reporting. Um, Diane Sawyer never forgot how she grew up. Diane Sawyer 
became one of the biggest broadcast journalists on television. And yet every single time you were sitting around her, she always talked about, you know, what it was. She was asking that question uh, about how it was that uh, she grew up and she was asking the question about how someone in middle America may be feeling listening to that story or this story. And that, you know, so all of that I think is so important. Awesome. And I, I think it's a really, you know, important thing that we do let, let our, let our stories inform the stories that we're telling, because it only helps, you know, the people that we're telling the stories to, they're also people mm -hmm. like us, they've come from all those backgrounds. So I think that's really important. And, you know, in the storytelling that we that we do for news, you have to cover some really hard topics sometimes, like the pulse shooting, trade the death of Trayvon Martin, earthquakes, the COVID pandemic, and you know now the the crisis in Ukraine. Like, how how do you personally deal with covering all this tragedy and trauma? You know, when the job requires so much, you know, from you personally. Yeah, you know, um, I remember the Pulse nightclub shooting, and I remember when we were flying down there right away, um, I ended up sitting next to a 9-11 survivor who lost family in 9-11. And we had this conversation where, you know, we were talking about surviving and all of that, and I knew that I would probably be meeting survivors um, of, of the, the Pulse nightclub shooting. And sure enough, um, we did a two hour 2020 special that night and I interviewed some of the survivors right away. And I remember that we, we did the story and I, you know, I kept my emotions in check as we, we did the first report and then came around the second report that I was doing for 2020. And then I remember just taking off my microphone, taking out my earpiece, going to the hotel room, closing the door and just bawling because so many kids had been lost in that shooting. And I think that the moment you start disconnecting um, and not caring about what it is that you're covering, I don't think that that's good journalism. I just don't. I mean, I, I think that it's so important to feel what it is that you're reporting on. And to this day, you will never hear me reporting something the same way. If you hear, if, if the story is sad, you're probably going to hear me being sad too. If the story is happy, I'm going to be happy about it. But I will never deliver the story the exact same way each and every time. Um, because however I feel about the story is something that the audience should feel too. Um, because I, I think that it's important sometimes when you're talking about tragedy and things like that, I think that what we do is for a human population. It is about humans. It is for humans. Um, and I think that the humanity part of it is super important. I remember being in local television and we were at um, the home of a, a parent who had just lost a child. And I was having a hard time just having this conversation with this person. And there was another reporter who put the mic in their face and quite literally turned away from them as they were talking and doing the interview, asking the question to the, to the air behind them um, with the microphone in this person's face. And I thought, I never wanna be that person. I never wanna be that person. I wanna go ahead and make sure that everything I do, I, I truly care about. And I just don't know how you can tell these stories and not care. And I, I think you will see that every time when you see Robin Roberts on the air. It's exactly the same way. When you see David Muir on the air, it's exactly the same way. 
Um, thankfully, I have colleagues who truly, truly care about what it is that we're talking about. I think that's so true. I think your point about the fact that these stories are about humans and for humans, and they're being told by humans too. I think it can get lost sometimes, whether it's in training of journalists or just like in the continuation of the profession that we're journalists and then we're humans. And I think it's so important to remember that like those things can and do exist at the yeah. same time. And humans first, humans first. That's if, if there's any message to all journalists around, humans first. That's the most important thing. Yeah, a thousand percent. I think um, kind of to that note, like journalism as a whole is not an easy gig, like by any means. And the last few years in general have brought a pretty vicious news cycle. What would you say keeps you in journalism? Uh, people. I think people, um, when I'm out on the street and someone approaches me about a story and we talk about it and how much it meant to them uh, to see that story, that keeps me going. The fact that people are, are truly watching and they care about the information that you're bringing them. Um, I, I do not think journalism is dead. I know everybody always, every couple of years, always floats this idea. It ain't dead, folks, and it ain't going to be dead. Everyone always wants the news, always wants the news. We, we need the information. Um, the format of how we get that information may change, but the reporting stays the same. That process has never changed and it won't change because the, the, the way we get information and deliver information and you know sort of verify and vet all of this information, all of that has been the same and will continue to be the same. Um, I'm sorry, I got lost. What was that? <laughs> no, that's perfect. This is like, you're speaking my language. I like preach and cry about this all day long. Um, but my ultimately, the question- By the way, was, just like not to, tune, to, not to toot my own network's horn, but like World News Tonight, just this week, is still the number one show on television. Number one broadcast on television, okay? That is the news. And everybody said that an evening news program cannot survive and won't survive. Number one, it clearly shows, especially as we cover all of this with Ukraine, how important this information is to deliver to the American public. And when you think about the journalists who are risking their lives right now, in, we just lost a Fox News photographer and a local producer working for Fox. We just lost them today. So that is, that is, they are putting their lives on the line to deliver this information. And thankfully, the American audience is looking at this and wanting that information and needing that information. A thousand percent. Yeah, Gio, thank you so much for reminding, you know, all of us how important this work is. Because sometimes, it, you know, it can be draining and discouraging and confusing. And when you remember kind of the importance of, of what we're contributing, um, especially like you're saying in, in times like this, it's a great perspective to continue to have. We do have a few rapid fire questions for you, Gio. We want to kind of get to know you a little bit outside of journalism. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. All right. I'm going to shoot them off. So starting off, how do you take your coffee? I don't drink coffee. <gasps> I actually drink uh, matcha green tea and I add a little dairy-free uh, nut milk there into it. And uh, I absolutely love that. 
And I don't ever drink any caffeine before GMA uh, because it dries out my throat. So I'm like, <laughs> I don't want any of that. So it's just straight up water before GMA. Water the, and the adrenaline. Caffeine comes later. Exactly. Plus one for the tea drinkers. Yes. <laughs> I shouldn't have ruled out that maybe you don't drink coffee. That's so interesting. Um, all right, second one. What's the first app that you open when you grab your phone? Uh, email. Email is definitely the first app because I want to see what's been happening overnight and whether sometimes I, I wake up and I don't know if I'm going to be on GMA that morning um, because there are developments that happen overnight and they may add me to the show um, overnight at three o'clock in the morning. And so I'll learn about that. So email's the first one. <laughs> Always the email. All right. So if you weren't a journalist, what do you think you would be? Oh, my gosh. If I weren't a journalist, what do I think I would be? Um, you know, I, I think that I, you know, I studied social, sociology. I, I didn't actually study journalism um, because journalism is something I learned on the job. Um, and I, because I worked with such incredible journalists. Uh, that everybody at my local TV station was like, don't study it, don't study it. So I decided to study sociology. Um, so I probably would use that background and maybe work in therapy, um, maybe work in social work. Um, I also was always fascinated by religious studies. I'm not a religious person, but I'm fascinated by religion. So I, I think I might also be a, a professor of religious studies. Oh my God, that's... Awesome. Um, <laughs> would you consider yourself more of an introvert or an extrovert? Oof. Um, okay. An introvert. I'm, I'm definitely, I think, an introvert, um, but I consistently try to be an extrovert. Does that make sense? I feel like the person I feel <laughs> like I am is an introvert, <laughs> but the person I show the world is an extrovert. An introverted extrovert. I feel that on a personal level. <laughs> All right. And last but not least, Twitter. Do you love it or do you hate it? Uh, you know, it's so good to communicate with people. Um, but I do I tweet everything? Do I tweet a million times a day? I don't do that. Um, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I also am very much a verify, 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 then tweet. Verify, 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 then tweet. Um, I don't ever tweet something that I'm just learning unless it's something that I'm witnessing firsthand. That's a good approach to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we could all use a little more of that um, on Twitter, <laughs> especially. Well, we really, really want to thank you for your time. This was such an incredible interview. You had spectacular answers and it was a lot of fun. So, oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. And can I say one more thing real quick? Please, you know, sure. Because especially if, if we're talking to an audience that is just getting started in these careers, I, yep. I, I think it's so important um, when we enter journalism, sometimes we get these first jobs and we think, oh, this is such a silly story. I remember doing a, a cat in a tree. I literally did the cat in a tree story, okay? Let me tell you something, it matters to somebody. And what's important to what, for what, and what's important for us and what we do is to figure out why it's important to somebody. And if it's just something that's gonna bring somebody a smile, that is so important right now. So don't diminish the importance of 
just bringing somebody a smile and, and do your work, do that story that you at first thought was silly, but now you found a reason for. Okay, I'll get off my high horse. <laughs> no, we no, love it. It's so awesome. prophetic. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's also nice to hear too, because I think especially like Mar was saying earlier, we are relatively early in our careers. We're going on year number two. And I think sometimes you can get lost in that mindset just when you're doing the same things over and over and the stories don't seem like the big ones at the moment. You do kind of get bogged down in it all, but it is nice to hear a little bit of perspective on that. So we thank oh, you good. again. <laughs> and this was great. We'll talk soon. Thank oh, this you. was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. I think this podcast is so important for people. So thank you for what you do and for encouraging yeah. people to continue studying journalism and becoming journalists. It's, it's so important, you know. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Journeys to Journos. If you enjoyed it, be sure to leave us a review. To stay all caught up on the pod, our guests and episodes to come, be sure to follow us on socials at J2J underscore podcast. We'll see you next week.